This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Several weeks ago, you may recall, maybe it was a little longer than several weeks ago, that Canada Post, that the folks who are trying to save Canada Post, because, I mean, it is a, 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 an institution that's in some trouble because we just don't use ma- the mail service like we used to. We don't send letters. We do everything by email. I mean, we send the odd thank you note or something, I suppose. We get some packages sent, maybe some magazines come, some junk mail especially. But we don't use the the mail service anything like the people before us did. 10 years ago, maybe not even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you would have had your bills sent to you by mail. You would have had you would have used the mail a lot. You would have had birthday cards, Christmas cards. Now you get that stuff sent to you probably in most cases by email. By the way, let me interrupt myself for a second. If you're calling and the line is ringing, let the line ring. Luke will get to you as quickly as he can. There's a bunch of people online. So Canada Post is trying to come up with these ideas of how they can remain relevant. And one of the ideas they had, I don't know, a couple months ago, we talked about it at the time, was that they wanted to perhaps partner with banks and they could be a bank, basically a banking service. They, They have storefront locations and so, hey, now Canada Post can also be a financial institution. Well, that that was kind of goofy. I mean, let's be honest. That's kind of, that's kind of ridiculous. What's Canada Post got to do with financing other than paying for your stamps? Canada Post and banking have nothing to do with each other, really, except for the fact that, as I say, they have locations. So, hey, we can put a location there. But, of course, you would now then, you would then be having a public government-funded body competing with the private sector, which is often cumbersome. We don't really like to do that very often for good reason. If we're going to have competition, if we're going to have private industry, if we're going to have capitalism, if we're going to have all these things, you have to let the private sector do its thing, not have competition from a government body that is that really doesn't have the same rules or requirements to make money or to make a profit or anything like that. So that idea was a little bit ridiculous, I think. But it's nothing like how ridiculous the new idea that's come out today is. Now, some of you who are fans of smoking pot you may think this is the greatest idea in the history of time. But the idea that's been put forward now is that Canada Post should be involved with the soon-to-be-legalized recreational marijuana distribution service in this country. Canada Post wants to be your dealer. Canada Post wants to be sending you your dime bag in the mail so that you can order, I guess, online or on the phone or whatever else. And all of a sudden, a few days later, the mailman's going to show up and I guess, you know, hand you your little bag of pot and you slip him your 15 bucks or whatever it costs. I don't even know what it costs. And away, I mean, do we really want to have a government funded institution like Canada Post now delivering pot? And here's the most ridiculous part about this. I know I know people will say, well, Canada Post already works with LCBO. They deliver some booze. If, the, if Canada Post is delivering pot to a household, there is essentially no way of knowing who this is going to. So your 13-year-old son who is savvy at working the internet, working the phone, whatever else, can order a bunch of pot and make sure that, you know, He's just around to make sure when the delivery comes that he can get that. I mean, it just, we've just heard reports in recent days from concerned medical people saying, listen, nobody 
under 25 should be smoking pot. Because, especially boys, because their brains have not fully developed and there are medical things that are going on, chemical things that are going on in their brains when young people are smoking pot. So, you know, whether we're going to introduce it legally, I mean, that's what the Trudeau government says they're going to do. We're going to introduce it as you can have recreational marijuana. There are many people in the health community saying, fine, but let's do this right. Let's make sure that we're not just giving it to anybody any kid, anyone who, we got to have age limits like with booze. We got to have all kinds of other limits and, and controls on this so we're not just hurting people. If we're going to have legalized recreational marijuana, that's the decision that the government is going to make, but we can't just be careless about it. Well, surely if then you're going to just say we're going to deliver it through the mail, as opposed to at the very least, look, there is no assurance that if you are bad parent number one and you decide you want to buy pot for your kid and they have a dispensary of some kind, there's no assurance that you can't go in there, buy the pot as an adult, show your ID, and then hand it to your kid, although you would certainly hope that we don't have too many of those people around. But if you do it by mail, there's essentially almost no real controls over this thing. Now, thankfully, thankfully, a number of people who are folks that people will hopefully listen to have also said that the idea of Canada Post getting into the drug dealing business is essentially a loopy idea. I mean, we're really just throwing spaghetti against the wall now and hoping it's going to stick. Let's find something that Canada Post can do. Whoever thought that Canada Post and recreational marijuana were a good fit, I, I'm not really sure. I think they may have been sampling some of the product, quite honestly. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. All they're saying is that we can be a low-cost delivery system. That's, that's, that doesn't make any sense, quite frankly. But that's what they want to do. That's what they're talking about now. I, I mean, there's, there's, it, you would hope that they would be way smarter than to engage in any significant discussion with this. Well, there's the newest idea. So if, the, if Canada Post can't get much more mail service because there's not a lot of letters to be delivered, and if Canada Post can't get into the banking service because we don't really want them in the banking service, maybe they can be your neighborhood dealer. Get those, get those guys in their short pants and the big garbage mail bags as they're walking around. One bag is filled with mail and one bag is filled with dime bags, and we'll just walk around and deliver them to houses, whoever wants one. We may have to arm the mailmen when we're doing this then because, you know, you're delivering bags of pot now. Someone's going to someone's gonna try and steal it. So now we're going to have to have heavily armed mailmen with sidearms as they deliver the pot. It's a, uh, it's a very interesting idea that we want to have, we want to do this. And again, when I say we want to do this, it's not too many people. The, thankfully, the national president of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers has said that the idea of selling pot is going to save Canada Post is patently ridiculous. Thank you, Mike Palachek. You, sir, win the prize today for being the one really intelligent person in this debate. It's not going to save Canada Post. Find something else. Or, or here's another idea. Hate to think of anybody losing their job. I really do. But if Canada Post is not a viable business any longer, why do we want to prop it up? If Canada Post can't actually work as a viable business, what 
is the reason why we would suddenly say we have to then continue to have a Canada Post. We don't just continue. Well, I mean, after this one, we're going to have Canada Post say, you know what? While our mailmen are going door to door, we're also going to have them be able to do some casual painting of your front porch. Yeah, because you know what? They're there. They've got the time. Leave the buckets out front. Leave the paintbrushes. They'll they'll paint while they're there. You know, Canada Post, they can attach your electronics if uh, if you have them come by the house. They're available. It, where does the, Where do the stupid ideas end? Honestly, where do the stupid ideas end? If Canada Post has run its course and the private industries, the FedEx, the Purelators, all these other ones, if they are much, much better, much, much cheaper, much, much more affordable, if the public wants them better, let Canada Post slide off into the sunset. It's sad. I am terribly upset, honestly, that there would be people who would be losing their jobs but if it is not an essential service anymore, if it doesn't work, let it go. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I like to think, as a guy who writes for the newspaper, that everybody buys and remembers their copies of the newspaper because of the scintillating writing that is always involved. However... However, I am realistic enough to understand that whenever there is an earth-shattering moment, when there is something that changes the planet, whether it's 9-11, whether it's Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon, whether it's whatever, the thing that makes a front page or makes a newspaper special and makes it a collector's item and makes it something that stands out, and even day-to-day the things that make it stand out are the photographs that are in that paper. And because of that, there is now a collection, an exhibit that is going on of some, many of the greatest ever photos from the Hamilton Spectator that have been taken over the years. I mean, it's 170 years now. I don't think they had photos in from day one, but it's a lot of photos. So at the Art Gallery of Hamilton, there is now a collection that Kathy Coward, who is a photographer at the paper, has curated and brought together of the best spec photos from over the years. And Kathy joins me now. Kathy, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> um, one of the really interesting things about coming up with a concept like this, and I, you must have gone through, I mean, how many? How do you even begin when you've got this many years of spec photos and this many big moments? How do you even begin to go through and decide what's going to be in something like this? Well, it was really difficult, actually. We... Um, and Jane Allison also helped me curate this uh, show. I shouldn't uh, should mention that that I didn't do it on my own. Plus, uh, also too, I had the input of uh, the rest of the guys in the department as well. So, you know, historically, it, it was a tough thing because our archives are now um, taken care of by the main branch of the Hamilton Public Library, and Margaret Houghton helped us out there, and it was great. But we had such a difficult time going way back to the beginning saying, you know, how do we do this? Do we pick the best or the biggest uh, news story and photo of each decade? So what we ended up doing with, uh, in the end was like we picked a couple, we t- picked about half a dozen of the biggies. And then the rest is about the, uh, is more comprehensive about the last 30 years uh, of the, Im- the images that are presented in this show anyways. Well, and of course, there. when you say the biggies, I mean, there are ones we're going to have Mike Hanley on in a few minutes. I mean, there are certain photos that are, 
so well known that are just iconic um, from the paper and from this city. One of the interesting things though, Kathy, when you put these photos up on the wall, unlike a portrait photographer, when you're out doing this for as a news photographer, what you're doing generally would not, I don't think, be categorized by most people as art. It's, it's, it's capturing a split second moment of something that happens in the world and, and reflecting that. And that yet when you put them up on the wall and you start to see these photos all together, it, I mean, it really is artistic. It really is an amazing amount of art that has been grabbed and created. Yeah, for sure it is. I mean, you have to remember as, as photojournalists and news photographers, we have to cover everything. So where some stuff isn't what you would exactly figure as art on a wall in a gallery. Some of it is, too, because um, we, we think about, as a local newspaper, we're also responsible to just be out in our community documenting what's going on, even even if we don't have an assignment. So a lot of those assignments fall to, you know, our, our fallback of line and color and light. So some of those are quite beautiful. But you're right, some of the stuff isn't. And um, I think that's what makes this such an interesting show. And I think it's why it's really, people are loving it. I've just, on the weekend, I was down at Supercrawl and just standing behind people, listening to the comments and people going, oh, I remember that story. Or, hmm. oh, I remember that photo, you know. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a total mixture. Where there's some hard news, there's some beautiful scenery, there's sports, there's oh, entertainment. There's a little bit of everything. And I know you didn't set out specifically to find some kind of theme because you were looking for a, a, a broader spectrum. But when you start to put them all up on the wall and you start to gather them, do you find that there are things that the best pictures have in common? Is there something that, that ties the best photos together? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, right off the bat, composition. I don't care if you're Which means what? For, for people who that hear that word, what does that actually mean? It means line and... The shape of your photo, I mean, often, oftentimes you can, you'll look at a picture and you'll be able to look through the picture and come right back around to the beginning again. Like, it should be, it should be almost symmetrical. Not every photo, obviously, is symmetrical, but at least the way you look at it, the, the fact that you can actually look into the photo and, you know, look deeper into the photo, it's not just a, a one-off. I mean, oftentimes, let's face it, there's photos that you take that are just plain funny. There's, no, there's, not, there's no more depth there. It's just a good laugh. But there's lots of photos that we shoot um, as a department, especially some of our photo stories, photos we get to, um, stories we get to work a little longer on. Um, those, are the, those are the pictures that you can really spend a lot of time with and, and really, you know, see a story within them. Um, well, and, and in these, uh, there are photos of people in great moments and there are photos of people in terrible moments. For, as a photographer, is one easier to shoot than the other? Absolute joy or unbearable grief is, is not which one is more fun to shoot. I mean, nobody wants to shoot a terrible story, but is there one that, that is easier to capture? A whole lot depends on circumstance, you know. It depends. Are you outside and it's snowing and it's 40 below? Or, you know, like we, we shoot in all kinds of circumstances. There, there's not one that's, that's easier to, to shoot than another, although it's never easy to take pictures of people in pain or grief or, um, I, mean, I mean, obviously we would rather, you know, not have to do that. But, I mean, we're committed to telling all stories, not just 
happy stories, right? Can so. a tragic moment inspire a beautiful photo, though? Definitely. Um, I, I will. One of the pictures in the show this uh, in this in this show is one that Barry Gray shot this summer, and it's a picture of um, of the man who was um, caught under the concrete and uh, up at um, right the slab of the, the slab that fell down onto his legs. That's right. And honestly, there is, it's almost, the way the emergency workers are working around him and cradling him, it's almost like a piazza. It's, it's beautiful, but it's also, you know, it's a really dire situation. But at the same time, it, there's beauty in that, too. And I hope people see that, you know. They don't often see our, photogra- our photographs enlarged and framed under glass. And um, I, I really hope they, they, they're able to take a, you know, a closer look at what we do. Well, that's interesting, Kathy, because everybody now on their cell phone, everyone has a cell phone, everyone's got a camera, and let's be honest, the cameras that are now on the cell phones are really very good, most of them. The new iPhone 7 that just came out, it's, it's like the, the Sports Illustrated shot the NFL games in the weekend yeah, with the iPhone, and yeah. they're, they're amazing. I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the quality of these pictures now that you can get on your iPhone are amazing. So why then... If everybody can take good pictures, why do we need professional photographers anymore? Well, as far as photojournalism is concerned, there's an ethics that not everybody understands about how you conduct yourself, <clears throat> excuse me, how you conduct yourself on the job in certain situations, what you do and do not do to photographs, you can't alter photographs. There's a, there's a lot to learn that way. As far as technically, I mean, those photos look great on your phone. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be you know, trying to make those into 2020 pictures and hanging them on the wall. I mean, there's there's no doubt that the technology has come a long, long way, but they also don't have a long lens. Like, there are longer lenses coming, I'm sure, but especially football games. So that was completely remarkable what they did with, <laughs> with the iPhone there. Is there, I mean, you talk about the technology. Could you ever imagine, you started with film. You started developing yeah. film. Could you ever imagine now going back to shooting film? Um, or do you? No, not on a daily basis, but yeah, yeah, for sure. Shooting film, it's, it's, I still love that too. I will say that I'm glad to be, um, I'm glad that none of us have to have our hands in all those chemicals every day anymore, (laughs) honestly. Yeah. Um, and just, uh, you know, the, the digital side of things, just knowing what you have before you leave a scene, I mean... I, I'm sure a lot of those kids out there shooting with their phones couldn't imagine that, you know, couldn't imagine if they, their job depended on it, that they could walk away from a scene and not really know that that image was on that film. Well, can you, do you I mean, even you've done this long enough now and, and all the other professional photographers, do you know that you've captured a moment even before you look on the back of your screen? Do you just know that you got it or, or even now do you still have to check and make sure? Oh Yeah. Yeah, you, you know you've got it, but that doesn't stop you from checking. <laughs> Do you ever? I mean, yeah. Have you ever yeah, missed great, one? Those are great feelings, right? Like you, you, you capture that. You know you've got something special. Doesn't happen every day, that's for sure. But I mean, when you do have something, it's the, it's a great feeling. And yeah, you'll look at it at least three times before you get back into the office. Have <laughs> you ever, to, anyway. Kathy? Have you ever missed one and known it and just wanted to slap yourself in the head um, that the moment got away? I mean, I know, again, it doesn't happen often, but is yeah, there ever a yeah, moment that you look back sure. on? For sure. 
I'd have to say most recently it's come to technical things like our, our cameras. Yeah. I mean, yes, of course I've missed things before and yeah, you, you kind of, you think about it way too long, but then you got to <laughs> let it go. Right. That's the wonderful thing about newspaper and, and, and photojournalism is that the next day is a new day, you know, like you can have a really crappy day one day, but you'll start all over again the next morning and, and go at it again. Just before I let you go, I got Mike Hanley waiting. Um, Everybody, I want people to know this, everybody has something in their career, in their job that they, hopefully, that they're really, really good at. And mm-hmm. for people who don't necessarily equate, oh, Kathy Coward, I, I know her stuff, right? If you ever see a photo in The Spectator, specifically, and I'm just going to use one example because this is something that you're remarkable at. If you ever see photos in the paper of birds in the wild, and you, that's probably, it's almost for sure Kathy. And you get tons of comments about this because, honestly, it's something that you do exceptionally well. And you know what? The question that I've asked you before, and I know my wife has asked me, how do you know where to look? How do you? How are you ready to get that picture? I don't know. Those The days that I go, I spend a lot of time at Valley Inn, and the, the, you know, down onto the RBG. And there are a lot of days when, like, it's just, you just need to get away from all the noise, right? And I'll... You just have to be patient. You sit down there and you watch. And you watch at everything that's going on, not just for something specific, because it's all linked together, right? That pond or that lake is an ecosystem, and you know if you know if one thing happens, there's a chance that something else is happening. You just, I don't know, you just got to practice like everything else, right? It's it's, And then every once in a while you get lucky with a spectacular sighting or a spectacular shot of something that you don't always see. Well... Here's the thing. Um, some people get lucky, obviously, more often than because you <laughs> you you say you get lucky. You get lucky an awful lot. It, it makes you. I, it makes me think you're not really getting lucky anymore. It's 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 skill. But anyway, uh, the exhibit is yep. at the main gallery, the art gallery down on uh, King Street. Yes, it's in the Fisher Gallery. Fisher Gallery, the main gallery. Yeah. And there's a second gallery. Yeah, and it's also at the um, art gallery um, annex on James Street North. And we opened on Friday night with a soft lunch for a soft launch for Supercurl so that, you know, we could get all the people in from Supercurl, take a look at it. And hopefully they'll come back It's because it's on display until the 9th of January. Kathy, appreciate you doing this tonight. Thanks. No problem, Scott. Take care. Uh, let's, uh, let's keep going here because Kathy is currently at The Spectator. She's still doing it. Look for her name beside the pictures. Every time they take a picture, you can see who took it. But there is another photographer, doesn't work at the paper anymore. Well, not even a photographer. He was a writer. He was better known, actually, as a writer because that's what he did. And he had a name that everybody in the city knew because the Hanley name, Bob Hanley, was a legend in sports. And then my next guest, Mike Hanley, came along and he was a legend in sports. And, and so you know, the Hanley name is still represented at the paper because Molly Hayes, who is a member of the Hanley clan, who is one of the great young reporters, she's still at the paper. So the Hanleys are still involved in The Spectator. But Mike was a writer more than anything. And yet somehow he took probably, arguably, the two most iconic photos in Spectator history. He joins me now. Mike, how are you? Let me try this again. Mike, how are you? Not too bad, thank you. There we go. Now I got you. Uh, Listen, thanks for doing this. I want to go through these things really quickly because there are two, we only have a few minutes, but there are two photos that you took that everybody knows about. And the first one, which went around the world, as I understand, it was a little before my time at the paper, was a photo that was taken of a police officer standing up to about his chest against the building during a flood. How did did this photo come to be? 
Well, actually, uh, the flood was, um, I mean, it was a huge, huge story at the time, and a huge flood. There was something like $7 million damage to the, uh, to the city of Galt. And, um, you know, back time, $7 million was a lot of money. Uh, that's a time when a million dollars would buy a house in Hamilton. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, I, I really have to give a big assist to uh, Doug Pollington. Doug Pollington is probably uh, better known as the father-in-law of John Rollo and uh, most of us remember what happened. Uh, he uh, killed, murdered um, Doug's daughter and grandchildren. And anyway, uh, I first met Doug when he was a, working with the uh, Hamilton Fire Department, and he later moved up to uh, Cambridge, where he became the fire chief. And uh, he helped me uh, get out to uh, to the policeman in the water. He loaned me some uh, hip waders because at that time. Um, well, telephoto lenses were around, but they weren't what they are today, and they were a little bit cost prohibitive. <laughs> so you had to get out to the scene to get the picture. So uh, Doug uh, loaned me the boots, and I went out there, and and I think it was uh, it was a pretty obvious picture. I I, I knew when I took it that it was uh, going to be something special. So uh, it, it's nice that uh, the, the picture stood the test of time. Did, what was that police officer wearing anything other than his uniform, or was he just wearing the uniform? wearing the uniform. I don't think he had the, the boots on. Uh, I mean, it just looks so strange having him standing there uh, so nonchalant in appearance with his arms crossed. But of course, if he didn't cross his arms, his hands would be hanging <laughs> in the water. But <laughs> how, how, <laughs> so quickly, how quickly after that picture was taken did you actually realize? Because I was just talking to Kathy, and she can look, you know, now with digital cameras, she can look on the back of her camera and see what she got. You you said you saw that that was an obvious picture, but you wouldn't have known that you actually got it till you got back to the paper and developed it. That's right. That's right. Um, I, I, I was pretty confident that, that I had it because it, it uh, technically it wasn't a particularly difficult sh- uh, picture to take. Uh, the lighting was there. Um, so I was pretty confident I had the picture. So I, I was... Uh, I was pretty anxious to get back and look at it, and of course you don't know until you actually see it in front of your eyes, but I was, I was pretty confident that I had it. What, what year was that? I think it was 1974. Okay, and do you recall, I mean, it's a few years ago now, but do you recall, did you take one frame of that, or are there a whole bunch of frames of that one particular moment? There was probably um, about six or seven frames, and uh, the picture has appeared a couple of different times, and, and from a very slightly different angle a few times. Um, so... so I guess we probably sent out the picture out over Canadian Press, sent out more than one version of it, so uh, a few different versions have appeared. But I probably took about six or seven. It's not like today where you you know with a you run off a thirty or forty pictures. Exactly. Yeah. No. Exactly. And you got and when you don't know what you've got, you better be sure you get it right. That's right. Absolutely. The other one that everybody remembers, which actually I th- I thought that one had come first, but this one that we're going to talk about next was ahead of that by a couple of years. It was the photo at Iverwin Stadium from the 1972 Grey Cup of Angelo Mosca from behind hoisting the Grey Cup towards the home fans. Right. And this photo, um, if I recall, this was a little more by accident. It was. Um, that's, that, that is a picture that I didn't, uh, I was not excited, too excited about it when I took it. I, I was more pleased when I saw it, you know, in processing it and looking in the darkroom and looking under the yellow lights and thinking, hey, this is a pretty good picture. Because <laughs> at the time, I was rushing off to uh, get to the dressing room. I, I think that was the last, might have been the last Grey Cup played in December, so it, it was cold. And when you went to the dressing room, your lenses will steam up badly. And I was trying to get to the dressing room. I had taken pictures of them celebrating on the field and, you know, Ian Sunter and after his kick and but I thought I better get into the dressing room and warm up my uh, lens so that I could take pictures as the team came in and you know just popping champagne bottles and all. 
so I was making my way to the dressing room when I turned and saw him holding up the cup, and, and or Angela Mosca holding the cup, and I took the picture from behind, and thinking the people who are taking it from the other side probably have a much better picture than me, but it just, for some reason or another, that, that, that picture seemed to uh, click with people, and um, I, I think that one was uh, was far more lucky than anything else. And again, do you remember, I mean, it's, it's again a few years ago, but did you even sort of stop and frame that, or were you almost just walking by and just click it, take a picture, and away you go? I stopped, but I, that's probably one where there was maybe, you know, there might have only been one frame. I might have taken one picture and then moved on, because my, my real concern was to get into that dressing room and make sure I'm ready when the players come in, that technically I'll be ready, that the the flash is still going to work because the humidity I knew would be bad, but uh, I really didn't spend a lot of time taking that picture. And like I said, it wasn't until afterwards that I realized that it was a little better than I expected, and yeah. I think the reaction that it got uh, pleased me and excited me. Well, a few years ago, I remember talking to Angelo Mosca about it, and, about it, and he said he still got requests for that picture to be autographed, that that's the, that is the photo that really sort of symbolizes that era of Thai cat football. Oh, really? Yeah, I remember another picture of him in the dressing room after that game, of uh, him and uh, uh, Ian Fleming kissing. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, what do you mean kissing? <laughs> Each other. <laughs> like, like kissing, kissing? Like celebrating with a real, real smooch? Yeah, 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 it was just unbelievable. <laughs> if that, I remember correctly, I think there was uh, Bobby Crouch looking up from the side like, oh my God, what am I seeing here? <laughs> that, well, you would have, and again, the funny part is you probably, when you took that picture, probably yeah. would have thought, well, that's the one that we're going to use. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I did. And, and, and actually the picture of um, Ian Sunter kicking the, the, the winning field goal and, and all the cheering. Uh, so, I mean, the picture that did end up, uh, like you say, sticking in our minds uh, was not the one that I was uh, anticipating. Well, one of the, I gotta, I've got to wrap this up, unfortunately, but one of the other great things about this, or, well, not great necessarily for the person who did it, if you ever, for, for anyone who looks and sees a reprint of the Hamilton Spectator from that day, of course, Mike's picture of Angela Mosca holding the cup goes across the whole top of the page. Take a close look, because it's something, it was an object lesson for everyone who's ever worked at the paper since, because there's one thing missing from that front page, from that Grey Cup win. Nowhere on that page will you actually see the score of the game. Kind of got overlooked in the whole excitement of putting that page together with Mike's great photo. But the photo, Mike, at least the photo covered for it. You, you yeah, compensated. Right. <laughs> well, there was two things missing. What was the other one? I think my name wasn't under that picture. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, now everybody knows. If you didn't know before, <laughs> thanks very much, Mike Hanley. Hey, listen, Mike. Thanks for doing this tonight. Really appreciate the time. Oh, uh, thank you. That is, uh, I, I, you know what, you can see uh, that picture as well, and and many other great ones. If you're if you're going down to the art gallery again to to take a look at some of these moments of Hamilton history, um, you will find Mark's uh, Mike Mike's work there, as well as the other photographers over the years. Uh, well worth taking your time because it really is more than even just art although a lot of these pieces are are really art and i want to say one other thing i have nothing to do with this i work at the spectator i've never taken a picture in my life so i'm not i'm not selling my my own work here um it is a slice of hamilton history that you will see over the years well worth taking some time you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from seven to nine on am 900 chml Friday is the CFL Hall of Fame game here in Hamilton. Hamilton versus the Montreal Alouettes, who, um, different story entirely, seem like they're in a bit of a pickle right now. The uh, the quarterback and the receivers are arguing and pushing around each other at practice. Uh, things are looking pretty good for the Ticats. When the other team's quarterback and his receivers are going at each other, that's a positive sign for the other team. Anyway, 
off topic. That's the Hall of Fame game coming up this Friday, Hamilton versus Montreal. But the Hall of Fame game would seem to imply a Hall of Fame. And we know the Canadian Football Hall of Fame Museum was down by City Hall, but it's now closed. So what is going on with that particular museum? Mark DeNoble, who's the guy who runs it, who's the guy who knows everything there is to know about Canadian football and museums, I think, joins us now. Mark, how are you? Hey, Scott. How's it going? Where are you guys these days? I'm still in the uh, the my the former location uh, next to City Hall. Uh, we're just uh, working through some details for, of course, the Hall of Fame weekend this week in Hamilton. But uh, it's been uh, it's been an interesting year about uh, you know, through a transition with the uh, CFL in the city and the CFL taking control of the Hall of Fame. Do you still have your office, or have they sequestered you down to some dark room in the basement now with rats and everything running around? No, no, there's no rats running, and everything's fine here. <laughs> I'm still in my I'm still in my old office, and uh, it's uh, it's like I say, it's been a very interesting transition. Well, let's talk about this for a second because my understanding, and correct me where I get wrong, get something wrong here. My understanding was that the hope had been that some or all of the new exhibit or new pavilion at Tim Hortons Field was going to be in place in time for this weekend. That's not going to be the situation, as I understand. So, what is going on with the hall right now and with the transition to the new location? Well, I think the major the major issue uh, through this whole thing since uh, we've uh, closed our doors back in September has been the uh, the I guess the uh, uh, legal, legal wranglings of the hall and uh, the CFL as far as working out an agreement. It took a, uh, longer than it it, it uh, was supposed to. I think we put uh, kind of a uh, you know a system in place where. You know, it'll take two weeks for this and three weeks for that, and and it just took a lot longer than we anticipated. Hence, uh, all the other work that to be done in the stadium, we got to a point that we were into August, September of this year. It's not worth if it's not do, worth doing right. Let's not do it. And let's uh, let's prepare ourselves for 2017. And there's and there's a lot of uh, you know transition going from a, uh, you know, so-called, uh, you know, my board that I reported to was a mix of CFL and uh, City of Hamilton appointees. And now I'm reporting to uh, you know, Glenn Johnson in the CFL office. So there's, there's a lot of, I guess, you know, uh, you know, I used to dot and tease the cross before we can actually, uh, you know, restart this. And, uh, but it's all, you know, like I say, it's all a kind of a, a legal legal issue, so we have to make sure that we're doing it right. It has been, and, and people always get this wrong, and i got to be honest, I've said it wrong more than a few times in my life. It's the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, not the Canadian Football League Hall of Fame. But is that right. changing now? Is it becoming the CFL Hall of Fame? No, it will always stay the, uh, you know, the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. We, we look after all... Uh, levels of football in Canada, the CFL and uh, amateur. That was one of the, uh, you know, when we first started discussions way back when, that was the first question that we asked about uh, the hall, that it would stay as a Canadian Football Hall of Fame. Uh, and the other one was that we were going to stay in Hamilton, and those were, uh, uh, between the city and the CFL, those were two definite yeses. So we, I think most people recall the general idea of what was going to happen here, that you were going to move out of the building that everybody knows where the tin man was tackling the other tin man out front. And they were going, you were, the biggest thing was all the busts of the honored members were going to be put into this new 
pavilion, let's call it, at Tim Hortons Field where people can go and see it. Are right. those plans, have those plans changed or well, have they been tweaked or what's, what's the well, new plan? They're, they're still working on it because I guess there's some, uh, there's some uh, you know, uh, I guess other input now that the CFL's taken over as far as uh, what it looks like at the stadium. I mean, I can tell people right now that the statue will be moving to the stadium. Uh, the archives downstairs will stay here. Uh, uh, permanently uh, for the uh, for the Hall of Fame. So you know a lot of the the bust and the uh, artifacts that were on the main floor are are currently in storage right now. But the idea here is you know uh, as part of this whole thing is to develop a program where artifacts can be shipped to other cities uh, on a loan basis, still property of the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, and uh, we've known each other, Scott, for a long time. Where I think the traveling road show makes most uh, the most sense, and also the fact that we're looking at uh, this year uh, uh, working together with the CIS at the Vanier Cup in Hamilton, hmm. and hopefully a Grey Cup in Toronto, and having the display out there. So there's, you know, there's a lot of artifacts downstairs that have not seen the light of day in, you know, and I'm not, I don't think I'm fudging the number for 25 to 30 years. And it's time for these things to get out so people can enjoy them. Well, you know what? I got down there one time when this all thing started. You took me down there. And I got to yep. tell you, there is some really cool things that are down there that, as you say, haven't been out, but that a CFL fan would go, that, that's incredible. I'd love to see that. Yeah. And, 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 and that's the whole point is, you know, we, we've got a, a chance to kind of reinvent ourselves. And it is, it is hard to turn around a museum of this magnitude to, you know, abracadabra, we are, you know, we're on the road uh, 365 days a year. It, it, it takes uh, thoughts and it takes a, a process of, you know, this is now a, a property that the CFL can use to their adva- advantage as far as, uh, you know, for a, a, a possible partner for the hall now, something that we haven't had in a long time. We do have Pure Later and Red Tag and uh, Jostens and Copley's. But, you know, they're kind of focused on the induction weekend. Uh, you know, they're great partners, but, you know, it's always come down, and we've talked about this, Scott, that it's talked about, you know, it's, it's, it's money. It's uh, what does this look like down the road, and, uh, you know, what, what does that property look like, and how do you engage people? Like, we go back to the, uh, you know, the 100th anniversary of the Grey Cup train that we, we were part of. People from coast to coast saw some artifacts that they haven't seen in years. Will the so has the plan for the the bust display, which is for, for everyone knows the heads. The, every inducted yeah, member gets yeah. a, a, a statue basically of their head. Mm. Is the plan for that still as it was that they will be at the north end of Tim Hortons Field? Correct. Yeah. And will that be one of the big questions? And I've never had the answer for this one because um, I've been asked before. What happens, when can I go see that? I mean, is it only on game days, or will it be set up that I could, I have friends visiting Hamilton, but there's no Ticat game for two weeks, or it's the middle of winter. Can I go by and see that even when it's not a game? The, the plan, the plan was, to, uh, was to do that where you could go on off games. Uh, now, it, you know, some of the design has changed a little bit, so I don't know what that has, has an effect on the overall plan. But the original plan was to non-game days or, you know, if there's going to be a soccer game or whatever, people can walk through there, uh, you know, uh, at, at their leisure. What about during games? Are, is, the, is the idea to have something special with anything going on there during games? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the idea here was to also bring, you know, bring in the, uh, not just the local Hall of Famers that, you know, we have 30 in the area here, 
but is to, down the road, bring in some Hall of Famers from other cities and kind of show them the uh, the new area that they're at, uh, inter- interact with fans, and also take them up to the Pinty's Hall of Fame uh, Club Lounge, you know, up, up uh, on the fourth level at Tim Hortons Field to intermingle with fans and uh, partners. I want to go back for a second because you said that all the honored member busts have been moved into storage. How do yeah. you do that? Because these, first of all, how much do these things weigh, each of them, roughly? Uh, they're you know? about 25 pounds each. Uh, it, how do you move uh, them? Well, we uh, we had uh, AGM Campbell help us, and uh, it took about three days to pack them all up and uh, store them securely in a, in a facility in Mississauga so that, uh, you know, they meet all the requirements of our uh, of a museum and uh, you know, that's, we have to look after them. There's, they're, they're, uh, you know, a property of the hall and, uh, you know, they're, you know, they date back, you know, Earl Gray's bust is there. So, you know, we, we have to take care and, uh, the, the guys from AGM Campbell did a great job. How do you pack something like that? Do you put it in a box or do you just wrap box it in styrofoam? And, uh, or? Styrofoam, uh, pellets and bubble wrap and tape and... <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, the, the thing about it though, is when you start to think, how many are there, do you know? 283. So you take 283 times 25 pounds times whatever their base is going to be on. Whatever structure it is that's going to be built has to be pretty darn solid because, you know, some person leans on that thing and the whole thing topples over. Someone dies. I mean, these are heavy. It's a lot of weight and uh, that's where, uh, you know, we have to, you know, watch where how, how they're stored and where they're stored and, you know, uh, but they've been great and, uh, you know, we've, we've had access to them. And uh, other artifacts, uh, you know, recently because we're trying to do some uh, projects here, so we have to pull things out of storage. And, and that's that's the hardest part is that there are things that are in storage that I need. You know, we have to make a call and uh, or we have to go get it. And, and, and that's, a, you know, it's a, it's a time time killer sometimes. I hate to ask you this question, but I'm going to anyway. Um, I know that you and I have laughed about this before. <laughs> the Warren Moon bus at one time, it's been replaced, but the Warren Moon bus was weirdly small when it originally came out. But have any players, and I don't, you know, you may not want to tell me names, have any players ever said, is that really supposed to be me? Or are they all just saying, that's fantastic, that looks exactly like me, the head that they've built? I think the majority, uh, the, the majority of the bus, the guys in, uh, uh, like very much. Uh, you know, we had, uh, we had a gentleman stop by here uh, a couple years ago who uh, it was a friend of Peter Dallariva's. And he didn't like his bus, so I gave him the the approximate cost to redo it. And, uh, we, we, <laughs> and he suddenly liked it. He, no, he we redid it. Oh, really? Yes, he he was a friend of Peter's, and uh, he said it's time for him to uh, have a better looking uh, profile. <laughs> I mean, from the ones that, and you've seen them all time after time after time after yep. time. What percentage would you say you could walk down, you, Mark Denoble, or any serious Canadian football fan, and even if the nameplate wasn't there, that you would be able to identify most? Most of them, yeah. Yeah. I've seen enough of them over 10 years that I, I see them in my sleep sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of frightening. Yeah, it is frightening. <laughs> yeah. You know, that would be actually a pretty good Halloween prank, is put one of those in the bed beside you and you roll over one morning. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, you're staring at Doug Flutie's head yeah, while you're uh, Darren Flutie in the bed with you. That's a that's a that's a concept. Yeah, well, you know, at least their heads. It would be like a some sort of like wild scene from the new Godfather movie there instead of a go. horse head. Yeah. All right. So the uh, just before I let you go, this is this is a transition to something completely different yes. from what you've had before. 
have you ever or do you ever look down at some place like Canton where the where the Pro Football Hall of Fame is down there? Do you ever look at that and go, man, I wish we could do something like that? I always look down to them and uh, and say, I wish we could do something like that. But uh, you know, it's a scale of economics. Uh, they have uh, they have uh, a, 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 a raft of money that they're doing a five hundred million dollar. Uh, renovation to the to the hall down there that includes uh, you know a, uh, a new hotel a convention center so you know if we can take little pieces uh, of of what they can do uh, you know uh, it makes us better uh, I think we have to uh, you know with the CFL help now that now that we have you know a, a proper PR department and a marketing department and uh, you know digital media and all that I mean. This moves the hall in a different direction. So, all those assets that the CFL has are now part of the Hall of Fame, with uh, you know two distinct you know brands and all that. But that's our problem. You know uh, that we our brand hasn't been as strong as you know the CFL or you know the NFL or the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That's where it has to be. Now it's not going to happen this year, and you know it's not going to be 100 percent next year. But if we start moving the needle bit by bit by bit, we'll be better, and it's better where we are than where we were. It will, yeah. You know what? There will be people there seeing it, and that's that's what you want. You want to have people involved in this kind of thing, and that's um, you know that, that's a good thing. Mark Denoble from the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. Really appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for the time tonight. Thanks, Scott. Night. It's. Um, it's not going to be the same kind of thing, but here's the thing about the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, and, and Mark would have said this. I, I mean, I, I could have asked him. He would have said it. There was literally almost nobody attending that building for the last few years. And so you say, well, why are we getting rid of a museum to put a display at the stadium? Well, you're no further behind. In fact, you're, you're ahead of the game because if nobody is coming to see this stuff, and I'm not exaggerating. It was like two and a half people on average a day that were showing up. It was something like that. It was some horrible number. Because you don't have people coming in, so you don't have revenue, so you can't upgrade to digital or hands-on things like you get at Cooperstown or Canadian or the Hockey Hall of Fame or anything. So you got no money, so you can't upgrade, so nobody comes. It's a cycle. And what's the point of having a Hall of Fame if it's just a dust collector? So at the very least... The benefit of what they're doing now, and I think it's a tremendous thing, is if the people aren't going to come to you, go to the people. And nine times a year at least, plus an exhibition game, if it's held in Hamilton, plus hopefully playoff games. So 10 to 11 times a year, you're going to have 24,000 people down at the field. That's 250,000 people, give or take, over the course of a year that could actually then wander over at the halftime or before the game or after the game and see these busts and be reminded of the greats of the game. No, it's not going to bring in any money, but the hall wasn't bringing in any money. So it makes all the sense in the world that we would do this and that we would suddenly make it available for people who aren't going to go out of their way. They're clearly not going to go out of their way. So bring the, bring the stuff to them and, and let them then, let them then see it and be reminded and maybe get some more interest. Maybe grandpas and dads and grandmas and grandmothers and all the rest, they can all then talk to their grandchildren or their kids and introduce them to some of the greats of the game that 
will be passed along. That's ultimately what you're hoping for if you're a fan of this league, that the history gets passed along as well as the current teams. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.